My name is Wade. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. We sang the words, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? What more can he say to us today? Uh, David, he mentioned earlier that we should be coming with expectation. We should be coming with a ready ear to receive what God is speaking to us. And uh, if you were here last week, you might remember Pastor Richard from Risen in Hayward. He he said uh, he spoke from Mark four, and he pointed out this detail in in the gospel that I really love, which is when the seed is sown, uh, it grows imperceptibly. When God speaks to us, it might seem like nothing is happening right away, but His word is sure, it's true, it will do its work in us if we are the good soil. So I hope just uh, for the next few moments as we receive his word, believe that this is the God of the entire universe speaking to us. He has something to say to us and I hope that we will receive it. I hope that we will be the good soil that will listen intently. I'm not so sure about the messenger up here. Uh, I'm a feeble man, but the message is great and grand because it comes from God. So, will you turn with me to your Bible or your bulletin? Our passage today is from 1 Corinthians. We're going through the first two chapters of 1 and 2 Corinthians this summer. Or, I'm sorry, first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to be thinking about what the church is called to be. So, read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. This is Paul speaking. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest a cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. So we're looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians, and in this passage, Paul is addressing the divisions in the church. Right off the bat, he's saying, there is quarreling among you. This is right after the, the, the greeting to the Corinthian church, and he's confronting the Corinthians. He says, there, there are divisions among you guys. This should not be. These Corinthian church members, they've found a way to, dis- to distinguish themselves from each other by latching onto these particular leaders and teachers in the church. And Paul says, this can't be. You can't be identifying primarily with these leaders. We see in the pastors names like Paul, Apollos, Cephas. And even though we don't know much about these men or what they taught, this passage matters to us today. And even to a church like IGC in 2019, there's where, at, at least in this point of our story, there's relative peace and agreements by the grace of God this passage matters even to us, even though there may not be obvious divisions in this church, 
Because what Paul talks about is not an ancient Corinthian problem. This is a problem for all of us even today. And this is the problem, that we are a church of a hundred-something people with a hundred-something unique personalities, and it's really hard for us to be this singular, focused, united group of people that we're supposed to be. It's so difficult with all the different personalities, and yet God says, I want you all to be united. I want you all to have the same mind. So how can we become a church that honors God by our unity? We did it early. We, we recited the Nicene Creed, uh, this, this uh, creed that the church has been reciting for 1,700 years. We did it by singing songs together. Uh, I thought it was pretty amazing that when we sang the song, Lord, I Need You, there were all these voices. We are all in agreement. We're desperate for God's help. We're united in this way. So Paul is going to focus on the church being united. So I have three points to, to help us see the argument that Paul is making in our passage. They're not in your bulletin, but you can listen along. The first is this. There is, number one, the problem of personalities in the church. And then Paul says, let's do something about it. I'm going to call you to unity as a church. And finally, what is the solution to our division? So our three points, the problem of personalities, the call to unity, and the solution to our division. So the first point, the problem of personalities. So Paul, he points out the, the, this, the, the conflicts that have come about in the Corinthian church. As the church, this relatively baby infant church, as it's developed and grown, people in the church, they've started aligning themselves with particular people in the church, particular leaders in the church. They, they're saying, I like what this leader is saying. I like this aspect of this personality, so I will follow them. And this is a problem not not because the men that are mentioned in this passage are false teachers. They're not. These are good men. These are uh, legitimate leaders of the church. These are actually Paul's friends and their co-workers. But they're getting more attention than they should be. They're, they're getting more admiration and focus than is healthy for anyone. Now, that's a problem. But the bigger problem is that the church members started taking sides. They started saying... Uh, we're not just one body. We are different people based on who we listen to, who we, who we like the most. Depending on the teacher, the leader that I align with the most, I will say I take sides with this person. So this is the cause of the division that Paul addresses. So now I know as you're, as we're reading this, it might seem a little bit strange to us, foreign to us, because as far as I know, there's not a lot of that going on in this church. People don't say, I follow Pastor Wade, I follow Pastor Michael, I follow the elders, I follow Christina, or whoever uh, your leader of choice is. I don't hear a lot of that. Maybe it happens, I, maybe I'm just oblivious to it, but I don't think that happens too much in our church. We're, we're, we're too sophisticated for our church experiences to be ruined by something so petty as that. But are we really so different from these Corinthians? Let me ask a few questions of us. Just some uh, simple questions right now. Do you identify as a fan of a particular sports team? Are you proud that you drive a certain type of car? I see some cars in the parking lot. I'd be very proud to drive. (laughs) Instead, I have my 2001 Camry. (laughs) Do you declare your love for a favorite singer or musician? Do you have a favorite clothing brand that you like to show off? 
these are just some innocuous examples of how we differentiate ourselves from other people. But then there are some more significant ways in which we distinguish ourselves. Am I on the left side of the political spectrum or am I on the right side? What about the subculture that I come from? What about my ethnicity? Or what about the social circles that I belong to? These are the ways in which we distinguish ourselves. And why do we identify ourselves by these things? It might be because we gravitate toward them. It might be because we we like them. But I'm going to push it a little bit further. I'm going to say this. This is my thesis for the next few minutes. It's that by identifying with certain things, we're not just saying that we prefer this or I like that. We're saying that this is the type of person that I am. When we say that we are a certain political party, when we say that we belong to a certain social circle, we're saying, I'm in the know, I should be respected, I'm socially savvy, I am woke, I am cultured. By identifying with these things, we're not just saying something about this thing, we're saying something about ourselves. Why do we follow anyone at all? We do do so because... It says something about us. We want to be known. We want to be known as something. So we let things like this shape who we are. We build our identity on them. We let labels testify to the type of person that we are. This is who I am. This is who I am. So here's a diagnostic question or several diagnostic questions to identify what these things are. If you removed these things from your life, How much would it affect you? How drastically would your life change if that group of friends was taken from you? How, what would happen to you if you couldn't be in this particular subculture anymore? Or what if you had no way of expressing your opinion about politics or religion or types of lifestyle? What if you had all those things taken away from you? What would you have left? Would you still be you? How we answer those questions will tell us what we really find our identity in. We may not find our identity in Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but we do find our identity in something. So this is my argument, that we all follow someone or someone's or something by attaching ourselves to them. This is what the Corinthians were doing, and this is perhaps what we do. What implications does this have for our church today? I think it's this. We'll be a divided church if we let these preferences and labels define who we are. What preferences, what tastes, what camp will you say that you belong to? As long as you latch yourself on to that, then this church will be a divided church. Instead, our identity as individuals has to be defined by something common. We have to have a common mission If we're not a part of this church for the sake of the mission of the church, then we're not going to have something durable and lasting to hold us together. Paul is talking about unity here. What is it that's going to unite us? If we don't have something bigger than our own fill-in-the-blank, we're going to end up connecting only with the people that we agree with, the people that we have superficial interests with, the ways that we distinguish ourselves from other people. This is division. And this is the danger to the church. 
So allow me to poke a little. Your relational status, this is a superficial distinction in the church. Whether or not you have children, this is a superficial distinction. The place of your residence, your zip code, this is a superficial distinction. The culture that you grew up in, your ethnicity, this is a superficial distinction. Your socioeconomic level, your political affiliation, these are all superficial distinctions. And yet we say, this is what I am, this is what I am. And we let these things divide the church. And I'll say this, church divisions, we think of it often in terms of there's, there are people fighting, there are people taking sides, there are people saying, I don't want to associate with those people, but we are too savvy and sophisticated for that. I know you guys won't, won't say that, at least to my face, maybe to each other, to your friends that you agree with, but I don't think that that happens. Church divisions aren't always hostile or antagonistic. Church divisions, the ways in which we segregate ourselves, this is way more subtle. When we come to church on Sundays or whatever groups we go to during the week, we shouldn't be coming in with a mindset that I'm going to be comfortable, I'm going to be safe right now. The place, the, the community that we belong to, the church, it shouldn't be a place where we're affirmed in our lifestyles. It's not a place for us to be socially enriched, as great as that is. There's this passage in the Old Testament that I've been reading over and over over the past few weeks, and I've been thinking a lot about it, and I think that it might have something to say to us. This is from Ezekiel 36, uh, 22 through 32. You can uh, look in your Bibles, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32 if you want, or you can just listen along. But this is God speaking to his people Israel, and here is Israel. They've witnessed God doing amazing things, and then God just drops a bomb on them. And this is, I've been... Let me just read it to you, and maybe maybe we can meditate on it a bit. This is God speaking to the house of Israel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Here God is saying to his people, you got to know something. All these things that I'm doing, it's not for you. It's not so that you would be enriched. It's not so that you would have a community ultimately. God continues, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is good. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you. This is good. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the deep increase of the field abundance, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. God is saying, look at all that I'm going to do for you. You're never going to go hungry. You are completely forgiven of your sins. You're completely pure. God must really love us. 
God must care a whole lot about us. And then what does God say? It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. In the Old Testament, the story is that God receives his people. God calls his people out. He rescues them. He shows them miracles. He forgives them of their sins. He changes their hearts. He promises that he will love them, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And then he says, this is not ultimately for you, Israel. It is not for your sake that I'm going to act. Make sure you know that. Make sure you write that down. Don't think that I do all these things for you. The reason God called his people to himself is because he wanted the world to know that he was the one true holy God. The purpose of Israel's existence was not Israel's welfare. It was for something far more important, which was the glory of God. Now think about that and think of our own church. Why does IGC exist? The reason we exist is not for your sake, I'm pointing at you, and I'm pointing to me. This church does not exist to make you feel comfortable. It's not for us to feel comfortable in our identities. The reason Indelible Grace Church exists is so that Castro Valley and the East Bay and the Bay Area would know that God is holy, that he exists, that he loves his creation through Jesus Christ. This is the reason why our church exists. It's not for your sake. And yes, I will affirm, God loves you more than you can imagine. God will do amazing things in your life. He's blessed our church. I'm always amazed that our church is still in existence. God will continue by his grace to do great things through this church. But the point of God calling us together as a church is not so that we would be a church unto ourselves. This is not a place for our individual needs to be met. It's not a place for our individual identities to be affirmed and shaped. God's highest purpose for the church and God's highest purpose for you is that our corner of the world will hear the gospel. This is why we exist. This is why you are here. Now, if this is true, it means that we might need to reevaluate our relationship with the church and to each other. If our mindset has been one of self-enrichment, of one of social acceptance, then this passage is the challenge that we need to hear. Some more questions for you. Consider the people that you hang out with in this church. Is it really easy for you to be with them? Is it really comfortable? Do they have the same interests as you? Would you be their friend even if you didn't have this church as a connection point? If you answered yes to those questions, then I have a challenge for you. Find someone in a different life stage that you don't usually associate with. Find someone of another ethnicity. Find someone that you disagree with politically. You'll find a lot. Someone who you Find someone who wouldn't fit into your crowd and sit with them during the catered lunches or invite them to coffee. Hear their story. Because this is not a place for you to be comfortable. 
And I'm going to hold a mirror up to us. This is one of these things I wasn't sure if I should say it or not, but I'll just say it. Uh, we have cliques in this church. We have cliques in this church, and people feel excluded. And for our church our size, I know that this is normal. This is natural. But did you know that the church is not called to be normal or natural? The church is called to be uncommon and supernatural. The church should be a strange place for the world to look at. There are people who come every Sunday and they feel isolated and lonely when they're here on Sundays and and maybe throughout the week as well because they haven't found a place to fit in. So my request, my appeal to you is this. Will will you find these brothers and sisters? Will you seek seek them out? Will you, after service, just instead of standing around in your circle, just keep an eye out for people that you may not usually associate with? And if this is you, if you feel like you're one of these people on the fringes, actually, I bet probably 90% of us feel like we're on the fringes of something. I want to encourage you to not feel sorry for yourself or begrudge the other people in this church. Instead, take initiative. Find someone else that you can befriend. Someone who's in the same boat as you. Find a place in this church to serve because the best way to develop relationships is to serve alongside other people. So Paul gives us this message. He says, do not be divided. We may not follow Paul or Cephas or Apollos. We may not follow pa- Pastor Michael or Pastor Wade, but we're following people. We're latching onto them, and in them we're finding our identity. We're saying, this is who I am. We identify with them because we find an, an affirmation of who we are and our way of living. But in the context of the church, we shouldn't be saying, this is who I am. We should be saying, this is who Jesus is. And I hope that our place, our church can be a place where that happens So what do we do about that? Our second point, which is Paul's call to unity. If you look at verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and judgment. There's two words I want to focus on here. The first is united, the second is judgment. So the first word, united, we get the word united from the Latin word Unum, or unum, which means one. You might have uh, seen the Latin phrase on your currency, uh, e pluribus unum, which means out of many we are one. You've heard this word before. The second word is the word judgment. Judgment. In the Greek, this can be translated as intention or purpose. So when Paul tells these things to us in verse 10, he's telling the church, I want you to be one unit with one intention. Everyone in the church is to act and think as one organism for the same purpose. One unit, one purpose. I experienced something like this at Trader Joe's a few weeks ago. This is the Trader Joe's right here on Redwood. Uh, so I was, I was in the checkout line with Christine and Zachary, and we had our cart full. And then I realized that I forgot to get something. So I told Christine, just stay here. Um, I'll, I'm going to be really quick. I'll just grab it, grab whatever we need in the refrigerated section. So I make my way to the refrigerated section. And as I was walking there, a, uh, the display fell right in front of me. There were these boxes of cookies. And what happened was one of the, uh, one of the Trader Joe's employees was pushing a cart and it knocked over all these boxes. And my first thought was, oh no, I'm going to have to help clean this up. <laughs> 
I felt so obligated, and because I was in a rush, I didn't want to help, but it didn't feel right to walk by the scene of an accident, so I decided in my mind, I'm going to help. So within 0.03 seconds of my decision to help, I see four or five Trader Joe's employees. They just swarm around this display case. And this was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in a grocery store. It was like they practice this at night. I don't know if they do or not. But it was, if you've ever seen people, uh, the, these race cars have their tires changed at, at NASCAR races, this is exactly what it was. It, it was like as if they just practiced this all night waiting for this to happen. Before I could bend down, within 20 seconds, the entire display case was set up exactly as it was before. I've never seen this at a grocery store, and it made me love Trader Joe's even more. <laughs> now, what, what did I see? I saw that there was no one that hesitated to just jump in and do what needed to be done. Everyone got on their hands and knees to help their coworkers. They all had their own, you know, Trader Joe's employees. They have lots of things to do. They have a lot of employees. There's a lot of stuff to stack and, and arrange, but no one paused to think about how inconvenient this would be to them. This was one unit with one purpose in mind. And this is what Paul is calling the church to be. He says, I want you to have the same mind with the same purpose. And what would this look like in the church? The first thing is to understand the purpose of our church Our objective is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. We are to be disciples and to make disciples. This is just following the command that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. Understand the purpose of the church. And then we ask ourselves, what should I be doing to serve that purpose? What have you been gifted with? What are you passionate about? What area of the church will you serve with your talents? What relationships can you develop we're told to be of the same mind. We read this uh, passage two weeks ago in our at our retreat. But Pastor Bruce from or Pastor Jeff from uh, Creekside, he read this passage from Philippians two. I'll read it to you again. Philippians two, verses three through five. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. And here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We need to be thinking of what we can do to serve each other and serve the church. It means that we don't, when we see need, we don't assume that someone's going to take care of it. We should actually assume that we'll be the one helping out if it's within our grasp, if we're able to. Help out. Take ownership of the problems you see. I hear complaints about this church all the time. And I'm glad because when people complain, it means that they're at least in some way making this church their own. It's okay to complain, but it's not okay to not do anything about it. Hear the complaints. Take ownership of the problems you see. There are people serving in ministries who are tired uh, some some of you guys have been serving so long, so faithfully, and I know that you're tired. And I hope that the people in the church around you, they will step up and say, how can I help you? Having the mind of Christ is also not just service. It's also, this is a two-way street. It means that we are humble 
and we allow others into our own problems, into our own burdens, and we say, we ask, can you bear this burden for me? And we all, as one unit, we can be humble, we can have humility, we can let ourselves be inconvenienced and worn out and tired out just as Jesus was. This is the mind that Paul is calling us to. This has happened in the past few months. It's been so encouraging to me and the staff. Some of you have asked me and Tracy, our admin, how they can help out while Pastor Michael is on his sabbatical. Um, it's, I, it's so encouraging. Even if I don't have anything in mind, it's, I, I love that you guys are taking ownership of what's happening in this church. Uh, there's at least one family I know who has rearranged their entire Sunday morning schedule for the summer just so that they can serve you Literally you, sitting in these chairs, they've rearranged their whole Sunday schedule so that they can help out with setup. They decided that the needs of the church were more important than their convenience on Sunday mornings. So many of you have served faithfully with little, such little recognition. This is you taking on the mind that Paul has called us to. We're all united for the same purpose. So in the context of IGC, it means that we look at our vision. We say, I'm here to follow Jesus, and I'm here to help others follow Jesus. And then we contribute as much as we can to make disciples. I mentioned that we have a membership roster, and on that roster are 128 names of adults and 29 covenant children. What would it be like with all our talents and gifting and resources, what would it be like if we all came together as one? Can you imagine if 157 people had one goal in mind? What do you think could happen in this church? What do you think could happen in Castro Valley, in Oakland, in Hayward, in San Leandro, and everywhere else that we live? What if there were 157 people in agreement with each other that the cause of Christ is more important than our own preferences, than our own needs. Paul is saying, be that church. Be that church. Unity is so important that before Jesus died, he prayed to his Father. This is in John 17. He says, Father, your church needs to be one. I'm going to read to you from John 17. Jesus praying I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I find this really remarkable because in my mind, I think the way to get the world to believe that Christianity is true is apologetics. Or maybe I want to make our faith more appealing. So our church should be set up a certain way. We should have great programs in the church. We should send out the most articulate, winsome people to represent IGC. But Jesus says something different. He says, The way for the world to believe the gospel is for them to see that you, as a people, are united as one. 
it's so important that we are united, that Jesus prays this right before he dies. So how do we get that? How do we have this undivided body that Paul calls us to? Look at verse 13. Paul asks this question. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Paul is asking a rhetorical question. Of course he's not. But I think it's more than rhetorical. Paul is talking to this Corinthian church about what the church should be. And later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the church as the body of Christ. And he's saying that the body of Christ cannot be divided not by the people that the members follow, not by the super, superficial distinctions that we all take on. We cannot be divided by these little tiny things or the big things that might come in the life of this church. Paul is saying that you need to be one just as Jesus prayed. So what's the solution to the divisions in our church? How do we achieve this unity that Paul is calling us to? The answer is the gospel. The gospel is a reconciling, restorative work of Jesus. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There it is again, that theme, division and being one. What divides us? Whatever it is that divides us, Christ can build that bridge. Christ can bring two men into together. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. The gospel says that the cross is a reconciliation to God, primarily, and then to each other. The cross is reconciliation to our fellow man. The gospel message is is, is a message that we have been alienated by God, by our attempts to be independent from him, by our attempts to set ourselves apart from God, by trying to build an identity apart from God. God, but God in his great love for us, he moved toward us. He came to us in peace. He gave us his son, Jesus, to be the penalty for our sins. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the peace of IGC. By his work, he reconciled us to God and not only to God, but he reconciled us to each other. He created us as one new man, united for one purpose. So what brings us together and keeps us together is this that Christ has given us a new identity. And we are the body of Christ because the body of Christ was broken apart on the cross. Do you get that? Our church cannot be divided because Jesus' body on the cross was divided once and never again. So this is the gospel that Paul preached. This is a gospel that provides the hope and the power that we need as a church Paul concludes in this passage, the the cross of Christ cannot be emptied of its power, and may the cross of Christ do its work in our church. Will you pray with me? Father, we are uh, astounded that 
in whatever miraculous ways you work, that you can bring together all these people with all our differences and divisions, and you can say, I look at this church not as 150 different people, but as one person, because Christ has brought them together. So I pray that we'd be a church that honors you by our unity. I pray that you continue to, to, to strengthen us as a church, that we would do what you've called us to do, which is to be disciples and make disciples, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.